So we begin our reading in Romans chapter 8, the first 11 verses. It says, beginning in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You know, I remember in school when I was a kid, when you come back from summer break or sometimes even going into summer break, they'd always have you write something. What are you going to do over the summer? Or what did you do over the summer? And same kind of with Christmas break. Christmas holiday was a little bit long, so it seems like the teachers often like to hand out those kind of assignments too. What does Christmas mean to you? And you had to write a little couple of paragraphs on what does Christmas mean to me. And you know what, that's kind of what we're... Uh, looking at when we look at the book of Romans. It's not a traditional Christmas passage in the sense that it details out the events of what happened that time that Christ came into the world. It's more of a, a little bit more of a theological look or a doctrinal look at what Christmas is all about. And that's what we're considering here this morning as I, I kind of debated back and forth what to label this or what title to put on it. I almost put down what does Christmas mean to you? Kind of like we had to do when we were in elementary school. But then I thought, well, I don't know that that's really appropriate because it's not really about what it means to me because the meaning of Christmas is not dependent upon what I think. In other words, there's not a different meaning of Christmas for you and a different meaning of Christmas for me and, and whatever you think it needs to be. And you can find some of that on Facebook or social media if you scroll through there. But you know what? The Bible is pretty specific. Christmas has meaning just in and of itself, irregardless of whether we recognize it or whether we participate in it. Christmas itself is just meaningful. So it's not really about what Christmas means to me. It's about what Christmas means. But then I almost went kind of back on that. Not to cast aside what I just said, all that's absolutely true. But the fact of the matter is, is my recognizing the meaning of Christmas makes it mean something more to me. Do you see the difference there? Christmas has meaning in and of itself, irregardless of me, but my recognizing that meaning allows me to enter into the participation. And so it does get to become personal and it does get to become a deep, meaningful experience 
on my part. Well, as we consider that here this morning, what exactly does Christmas mean? As we look through these few verses in the book of Romans, the first thing that we find spelled out is the necessity of Christmas. What we see at the very beginning is why he's sending his son into the world. What is the purpose of this? You know, I remember growing up for the first 20 years of my life or so, focusing on Christmas. I loved Christmas. I loved the way our family celebrated Christmas. But you know what? For a long time, I went through a lot of the celebration and stuff without really recognizing what it really meant, what it really stood for. It was a fun family activities. It was something that seemed to kind of draw us together as a family. It was positive in a lot of different ways. But I completely missed the meaning of Christmas. Now, I knew that there was always a nativity and it celebrated Jesus coming into the world. But I never really made the personal connection to myself of exactly why he was coming into the world. And that's one of the things that the book of Romans does for us at this point. If we look at the very beginning part of verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, in God sending his son, he sent his son for a specific purpose. You see, the primary reason that Christ came is because he needed to accomplish something for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. And that's what Romans is all about. In fact, do you notice in the very beginning, the first word of the passage that we read in chapter 8, verse 1 is the word therefore. Every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, it means that there's a reason that it's there. It's there for this reason. And so usually what you need to do then is you need to kind of back up and see what came before it and find out why this passage is here. What's it there for? Well, chapter 1, he starts off and he talks about the condition of mankind. And first he picks on the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. He points out the sin of the Gentiles, the people that separate from God, pagans in their worship, worshiping other gods, participating in idolatry, and, and sinning against God. He says, look at, their, look at the Gentile world, the world without the knowledge of God. And what do you find? You find it steeped in sin, guilty before God. For the first chapter, he focuses on the Gentiles. Look at the levels they'll go to. They'll worship other gods. They'll worship, they'll worship things made by their own hands. In issues of morality, they will sin even against nature. They'll go contrary to nature in their immorality. And so look at the sin that is within the Gentiles. But then he doesn't stop there. He focuses on the Jewish people and he says, what about the Jewish people? What advantage do you guys have? Well, you guys have the advantage of God. God revealed Himself to you. He chose you as His chosen people. You have His Word to follow. But you know what? If you look at your lives, you have the Bible but you haven't kept it. So the Gentiles didn't have the Word of God and they sinned. You had the Word of God and you still sinned. And so his point in that by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, his point for both of them is the same. You look across the world and you look at the state of mankind and he says, here's the final verdict. Guilty. We're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know the rules and we've all broken the rules. In fact, he says every mouth may be stopped and otherwise all of us would just close our mouths and be guilty before God. The point is we don't have an excuse. We know that we've broken the rules. You know, C.S. Lewis points this out in his book, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity started out as a radio program where he's reaching out to British young men that are going off to war and he knows many of them aren't going to come back. And so he wants them to take the time to seriously consider the meaning of the gospel so that they can have eternal life. And so he starts with this place. He says, we all know the rules. There's something we used to be referred to as natural law. And it's not talking about, usually when you, we use today, we use terms of like natural law. We talk about like gravity or biology or physics. 
He says, there is such a thing as natural law. By that, he meant a law that is written in our hearts. In fact, Romans talks about it earlier in dealing with the Gentiles. He says, even though they didn't have the Bible, they know those things are wrong. And C.S. Lewis says, you know, when you look across humanity, that's what we see, is we all have inside of us this deep understanding that there is such a thing as right and wrong. He says, that's why you always hear different arguments that are out there. Like, well, you should give me a piece of your orange. I gave you a piece of mine. Or um, leave him alone. He didn't do anything to you. Why are you bothering him? And he listed all these just common arguments that you hear people make, and nobody argues with the logic in them. In other words, when somebody makes an argument like that, they're stating a principle that they expect the other person to know that this is the right way things should work. And he says just ingrained into us is this principle of right and wrong. And he recognized that some people would argue as you go to different culture, you find things differently. He said, but no, not so much. They might have little variances, but it's never big. You'll never find a culture where for the soldiers, it is honoring to run away from the battle instead of toward it. You might find one culture where they have one guy might have one wife and that's all you can have. And another culture where they might have four wives. But still within every culture is this idea that you can't have just any woman that you want. And that other people have wives that are off limits to you. And so he says the, the, the differences aren't as big as, as they would like to make it seem. But you see, the point is that because we're made in the image of God, there is this natural law kind of built right into us. But the interesting thing is this. Everybody has this natural law within them, a knowledge of what's right and wrong. And you know what? Everybody violates that same law. I have a set of principles that I think are very important and it might differ a little bit from yours. But did you know what? The fact of the matter is, is I know that even my own principles that I see as important, I've broken those. I've violated those. And you know what? You, with your own set of principles that you think are them, you have violated yours. You, you won't find a person on the face of the earth that won't admit that, yes, I've broken some things that I hold dear. And the point that he's making is the same point that the Apostle Paul is making at this point in the book of Romans, is that we've all violated that law. And so we're broken. So the first three chapters in the book of Romans, he points out the sin of the Gentiles. He points out the sin of the Jewish people. And so we're all guilty before God. Even if you're allowed to use your own standard, make your own list, you still will find yourself guilty before God. And in the book of Romans, he's not using our own standard. He's using God's standard. So it says in the end, we're all guilty before God. So then what is it? Is it a lost cause? Are we hopeless? No. And the reason for that is in the next few chapters, in Romans chapter 4 and 5, how our first Adam, from Adam, we get sin and we get condemnation and we get judgment. But from the second Adam that we sang about in just a moment ago, Jesus Christ, we get forgiveness. We get reconciliation. We get brought back to God. And so the second Adam is undoing what the first Adam did by sinning against God. And so we're not hopeless. We have great hope because of what Jesus Christ came to do for us. And in chapter 4, it talks about how we can appropriate that to ourselves. It says, well, what do we find in Abraham? He was a good guy. What we'd call a good guy said, but not before God. He's as guilty as everybody else. He says, but what do we find about Abraham? Abraham believed God and to him it was credited as righteousness. And so for chapters 4 and 5, he's saying, look, because of our sin, we're guilty before God, but you can be removed from the underneath that guilt and be brought into a freedom in Christ by putting your faith in Christ. If you believe God the way Abraham did, if you put your trust in Christ the way Abraham did, then you are out from under that sin because Christ has paid for it on the cross. 
And chapter 6 says, well, if God is that gracious, then maybe we should just keep living in sin. He said, no, 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 you can't do that. But then chapter 7, he says, but you know what? The struggle is real. You're going to continue to struggle with your sinful nature. And there's a battle going on within you in chapter 7. And he says, I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do. And I find myself not doing the things that I do want to do. So there is kind of an ongoing battle. Now, that brings us to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is about winning that battle. It's about finding ourselves in Christ, having recognized our sin in the first three chapters, having put faith in Christ in the next two chapters to be delivered from that, saying, putting to death that sinful nature that's within us. And now chapter 8 is about learning how to walk in the Spirit. And he says, why did God send His Son? He sent His Son to do for us something we couldn't do for ourselves. We find ourselves unable, that law, that natural law, even within ourselves, that specific law that God spells out in the Ten Commandments and other commands to Israel, that specific law, we find ourselves failing to meet it. And so God had to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christianity is not about self-help. It's about learning to trust in Christ. Now, if we look back into chapter 7, we get a little better understanding of what exactly he's talking about within that law. It says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. What is the purpose of the law? Why is it there? He says the law is to highlight our sin. I see the law and all of a sudden now I know what's right. But what is it also highlighted? It highlights how far I am away from being that righteous person that God requires. So now he's going to deal with the law. What it, well, then is the law good? Is the law bad? And he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure." For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. I remember before I grasped what Christ was all about, this is kind of where I was. I was trusting in the law, so to speak, because my reasoning was, I always figured that when I died, I would go to heaven, and I figured God was happy with me. My reasoning was that I'm a pretty good person. I thought, well, I believed in God and I lived a pretty good life. I hadn't killed anybody or done anything too terribly bad. Fairly nice guy, probably depending on who you ask. That was why I thought I was on my way to heaven. That's why I thought God was fine with me. But then I learned the law. All of a sudden, my facade of my own self-righteousness just crumbled. And all of a sudden, I realized that I didn't measure up and that I didn't have any excuses. My mouth needed to be closed. I didn't have any excuses to offer God. The fact of the matter is, is there are principles that I held to be dear in life and I knew I'd violated them. And so I'm standing before God guilty. The Apostle Paul says, you see, that that's what the law does. Here I was kind of trusting in the law. If I'm going to get to God by being a good person, that means I'm getting to God by keeping the rules, keeping the laws. And all of a sudden I realize, you know what, those, those laws aren't helping me get to God. Those laws are actually keeping me from God. Because it's the law 
that points out my guilt. It's the law that shows my sin. It's, it's the law that highlights that I've blown it. We never make laws to pat you on the back for doing good. Laws are always made to correct harmful behavior. And all of a sudden I realized my behavior isn't so good. That law was not something that would help me to get to heaven. That law is exactly what would keep me out of it. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. If you want to trust in the law, if you're thinking the law is what's going to give you life, it can do that. But you have to keep it perfectly. The only one that's ever kept it perfectly is Jesus Christ. That's why He's able to overcome it for us. You can have life in the law if you never break it. And I know my personal experience is that's not a thing that can be done. I've broken it repeatedly. So then the question comes up, then is the law a bad thing? And he's like, no, the law isn't a bad thing. Sin is the bad thing. The law is the good thing that shows us the sin. The law is the spiritual thing that shows us the carnality of ourselves, the sinfulness of ourselves. So the law is actually a good thing. The law is a great, righteous standard. And he also points out, in your heart, you agree that the law is good. And and how do we know that? Notice that last line there. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. you got something that you're struggling with, something that you're trying to do better, Maybe it's the way that you respond to somebody. I get into a situation, why do I respond so abruptly? Why do I respond so meanly? And so you got that thing that you're working on, right? And, and when you blow it, then what happens? How do you feel? You're like, dang, why did I, I did it again. Why did I do it again? In doing that and being upset with yourself when you're saying, I wanted to act this way, but I, I blew it. You know what? You're, you're acknowledging that the law is right. That the law is good. That there is a law that you should not act that way. And so that's what he says. He says, look, by you trying to do the right thing, even when you fail, you're acknowledging that the law is true and the law is right. So the problem isn't the law. The problem is the problem is us. Well, he goes on then from there and he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Even the Apostle Paul is saying there's this law out there and it's good and it's righteous and it's spiritual, but inside of me, he qualifies, he says, that is in my flesh. In other words, just in himself alone, he says, I can't do it. Now, the encouraging thing is, chapter 8 is not about living in the flesh alone. It's about walking in the Spirit, which enables us to do it. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, I find that in me, there's an acknowledgement of good, but I, I can never measure up. And that is why Christmas is necessary. Christmas is necessary because we cannot do it on our own. We cannot fulfill the law of God. We cannot be righteous enough to get uh, get to heaven or into God's presence. We cannot be pleasing with God. In fact, as he describes later on, down through chapter 8, he says it's impossible for you to please God in the flesh. This is something that had to be done on your behalf. It's not something you could accomplish. That's why verse 3, the first part of it says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The first thing we see is the necessity of Christmas. Christmas is absolutely necessary. But not only do we see the necessity of Christmas, we also see in the last part of that verse, we see the accomplishment of Christmas. 
Now let's back up and read it again because it's all one sentence that needs to flow together. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. What exactly did Christmas accomplish? Christmas accomplished our forgiveness. Christmas accomplished our righteousness. Now, in using the term Christmas at this, I'm actually using it in a broader sense. Because when it talks about God sending His Son, it's not just talking about the moment that He came into the, into the world. It's covering the birth of Christ into this world, the life of Christ, and the death of Christ on the cross, and the resurrection of Christ from the dead before ascending up into heaven. And so when it talks about God sending His Son, it's actually encompassing all of that. So it's not just Christmas, but none of the rest of it happens without Christmas. Well, the accomplishment is that Christ would overcome our sin. Christ came and He was born into this world and He walked in our shoes. And He did it perfectly. Right after His baptism, He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. He comes out of that temptation as pure as He went into them. We don't measure up. We've all violated the law. We've all broken the law. But Christ, as He lived here, He fulfilled the law which is what He told us in the book of Matthew in chapter 5 that He was coming to do. He wasn't coming to take away the law. He was coming to fulfill the law. In His life, He fulfilled the law's righteous requirements. And then He went to the cross. And as that righteous one, as that substitute on our behalf, He laid down His life on the cross and then He rose again from the dead, taking victory over sin and over death for us. Where the law points out our guilt, Christ satisfied the law. Along with the commandments that we're in with the law, we also find God giving sacrifices. Why? Because nobody could keep the law. And so whenever they broke the law, they would come and offer those sacrifices as atonement for their sins. Well, Jesus Christ came and He fulfilled all of that. He kept all the commands which showed His righteousness. And He offered Himself as the sacrifice that's contained within the law. So all those sacrifices that were given in the law pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the whole law. You see, that's the point. From the day you were born, there was no way that you were going to fulfill the law on your own. There's no way you're going to keep it. You know, parents don't teach their children how to lie. They teach them how not to lie. They don't teach them how to be selfish. They teach them how to share. They don't have to teach them to be mean. You have to teach them to be kind. There's just a bent within us that is so bent on breaking the laws of God that there's no way we could do it on our own. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to do it for us. What did Christmas do? It accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own. That's why Galatians kind of echoes the same thing in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4-7. through seven. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The law is there, but we all fall short. And so He sent Christ to do what we couldn't do. Now, not only do we see the accomplishment of Christmas, but lastly, let's look at the result of Christmas. Now, I know that the accomplishment and the result are very closely tied together, but what I mean by the difference is this. The accomplishment is what Christ did, what He accomplished on our behalf. The result is then what gets to be our experience after that. In other words, what can be our experience in this life because of Christmas that we could not have had without Christmas. 
Verse 4, it says, "...in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." So God sent His Son. There's the necessity of Christmas. We all fall short of the law. There's no way we can do it. The accomplishment of Christmas. Jesus came and overcame that. But then what is the result of that in our lives? The practical outworking of that. It's the fulfilling of the law in us. What we see in this is we see an empowerment. Now we have something more. It's not just us trying to do things in our flesh. Because as he points out, our flesh is going to be always contrary to God. That sinful nature is always against God. It's never pleasing to God. But he says, it will be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. We walk in the Spirit. In this result then, we see change. The first change that we see is a positional change. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see, it's a positional change. Before believing in Christ, we were in the flesh. And that's one of the phrases that he uses over and over in this passage. Because of the flesh, we couldn't keep the law. But that's not us anymore. It's not just our natural selves anymore. There's something supernatural to it. He says we're no longer in the flesh. Now we're in the Spirit. He also uses the phrase in Christ. That's our position. When we put our faith in Christ, we get moved from being in sin, from being in the flesh, to being in Christ. Romans 8 adds, and also in the Spirit. And so you see, the moment we put our faith in Christ, we're moved from being in the flesh and in sin to being in the Spirit and in Christ. There's a change that's taken place. The moment I put my faith in Christ, I recognized a change in my life. Because the moment I put my faith in Christ, I became a child of God. I'm no longer on the outside looking in. Now I'm in the family. Well, the same kind of idea is is being expressed here. We are now no longer under condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ as we walk in the Spirit. So positionally, a huge change. But then not only is there a positional change, there's a practical change. He begins going through what our life should be like. He says, before you had no chance of upholding the law, now you're going to fulfill it. And how is that going to happen? As you walk not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Well, how do I know if I'm walking in the Spirit? He says, well, what do you think about? What's on your mind? Do you mind the things of the flesh? Or do you mind the things of the Spirit? Do you find yourself thinking about spiritual things, about the way God looks at things? Or are you stuck on the fleshly things, carnal things, shallow things, worldly things? He says, because you know what? In the end, that's who wins. If you set your mind on fleshly things, you're going to do fleshly things. How does that saying go? Are our thoughts become our actions? Our actions become our habits. Our habits instruct our character. Our character controls our destiny. And that's why for the Christian, as he's going to get to in Romans 12, the renewing of the mind is so important. What are you thinking about? So you see, it gets intensely practical. So there's a positional change. I go from being in sin, in the flesh, to in Christ and in the Spirit. There's a practical change of learning how to walk in the Spirit. And then the very last thing that it points out about this change is that it is a powerful change. In verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You know, raising somebody from the dead, that's just something that's not done, right? It's not, I mean, I understand there's medical procedures. You can lose somebody for a short bit and back, that kind of thing. But Jesus showed uh, a power that was way beyond that as he raised Lazarus that was like in the tomb for four days. Jesus in a tomb for three days. 
And it says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that ultimate power, that same Spirit that raised Christ, that is the Spirit that is in you. Now, let me ask you this. What kind of difference can that make in your life? That is an amazing amount of power that we are in touch with. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He will empower, strengthen you to be able to walk in the Spirit to do what you need to do. So as we look at Romans chapter 8 in a very practical way, what does is, what is Christmas mean? We see the necessity of Christmas. You know, without Christmas, without Christ coming and then offering that ultimate sacrifice for us and rising from the dead, there is no hope for us. This is something that we absolutely cannot do for ourselves. But we also see the accomplishment of Christmas, that Jesus came and accomplished it for us. The result of Christmas is that I've had some changes take place. Positionally, I've been moved from one family to another. I've been moved from underneath Satan's domain to underneath God's domain. I've been brought out from underneath the wrath of God and into the forgiveness of Christ. I've left the flesh. Now it's time to walk in the Spirit. So the ongoing result of that is a powerful change. It's a practical change that takes place in our life as I learn to yield and to walk with that Spirit.